It's good to be here this morning. Uh, Pastor Joe is on vacation um, and somewhere nicer than Buffalo, so that's the good news. Buffalo is never that nice in the summertime. Um, but this morning, I thought I would like to tell you a little story uh, about something from history. Who likes history? There's a lot of people who like history. So on uh, April 14th in 1912, at approximately 11.40 p.m., the unthinkable happened. The Titanic began its two-and-a-half-hour descent down to the bottom of the ocean. Now, when I just said Titanic, here's what popped into your mind. Right, Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, the song, You're Here. And now I just ruined the movie for you because every time you think about it, you're going to think about my singing. You don't really need to watch the movie anyways, right? You know how it ends. We all know how it ends, so you don't need to watch it anymore. But if you follow the story of the Titanic, what you find out is that it was one of the safest ships that was ever built up into that time. One of the largest, one of the fastest you know what? When they were heading out to sea, they decided that instead of the 64 lifeboats that it could fit on it, they would only put about 20 lifeboats on it because why would you need lifeboats if something doesn't sink? One of the crew members, maybe even the designer, we don't know, they said not even God can sink the Titanic. And on April 12th, the crew of the Titanic was getting messages all day long that there was some heavy ice in their path and that they should slow down. And so they told the owner of the Titanic and the white, the white star line, I think it's called, they said, hey, listen, here's the reports we're getting. And he said, keep going full steam ahead because we're going to make it to New York faster than anyone expects us to. And at the end of that day, 1,500 people lost their lives. Do you know what? It wasn't actually an iceberg that sunk the Titanic. It was pride. Pride actually sunk the Titanic. And if we're not careful in life, it's not the big things that will sink us. It's not the big things that will cut our journey short. It's actually pride. And that's what we want to talk about today. That pride's going to stop us from finishing well if we let it. We're going to go back to the story of Gideon. We've been talking to him for the past two weeks in our series. It's called Judges Have It Your Way. And we'll see Gideon, he had an awesome start, right? So God used him. He took about 300 men, and they fought an army of about 135,000 men. And unlike the movie, The 300, where they fought valiantly but died, these 300 succeeded and ended up routing the enemy and taking care of them. And then here's how it normally goes in the book of Judges. So the book of Judges talks about the judge, talks about the battle, says they won, and then ends with this statement. Then there was X amount of peace for this many years. And so it does say that about Gideon, but the problem is there's 27 verses in between. Gideon won the battle, and there was peace for 40 years. And I think in those 27 verses, what we're going to see is how pride really stopped Gideon from finishing well. So if you have your Bible or an app this morning, I'd love for you to, to pull it out. We'll have it up here on the screen, but I think looking at it in your own Bible and your own app just helps you get used to doing that all the time. So if you have that, open up Judges chapter 8, and we're going to do 1 through 35 so you can turn to that. And while you're turning to that, I just want to pray for us this morning. Ask that God would speak to us.
God, thank you this morning for all that you're already doing in our hearts. I pray your Holy Spirit would be with us. That he would speak to us in ways that we don't expect. You would reveal to us things we haven't seen before. And you'd help us to make our lives about you, Jesus. We ask that you be here in your name. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk about how pride stops us from finishing well. And we're looking at the life of Gideon. And so here's the first thing that pride does. We're going to jump right into it. Pride blinds us from seeing our source of strength. If you're taking notes, pride blinds us from seeing our source of strength. So let's read this passage together. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now Ephraim asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Orb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, the resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up their pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request to them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Kakor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jagbaha and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army or taking out their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Hares. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him all the names of the 20, or 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? So he took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one of them bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw a sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camel's neck. So that was a long passage kind of giving us a little bit of, of Gideon's exploits after his battle. So let's rewind a little bit though. Because Gideon, back in chapter 6 and 7 for the last two weeks we've been talking about, was kind of a timid guy 
And he wouldn't move unless God told him to move. And now, look how Gideon's changed. Now he's kind of this courageous and brutal warlord who's come in to take out all these different people. And you might think, yeah, that's exactly the leader that Israel needs. And yet there's something kind of big missing. What's missing is God. Or as in the Old Testament, it's called Yahweh. See, in chapter 6 and 7 that talk about, talk about uh, Gideon's good beginning, we see God's name six or seven times, and he's kind of directing Gideon and giving him the strategy and telling him what to do. But here, Gideon's not talking about God at all. First, he talks to this tribe in Israel called Ephraim. Ephraim was kind of a, a bigger tribe than, than Gideon's tribe. And they say, why didn't you call us out to help you fight the Midianites? We would have been there. We would have helped. And instead of saying, hey guys, guess what? God only wanted 300 men to go and kill that army so he could take the glory. Instead, he kind of sidesteps. And he kind of says, well, I'm going to be diplomatic and I'm going to say, you know, you guys are better than me anyway, so what are you worried about? But he doesn't talk about God. And then we see this next very disturbing scene. Gideon goes to the people of his own area of the Israelites to Succoth and to Peniel. And now the reason they wouldn't help him out, maybe you're wondering why won't they help him out, why won't they give him bread, is because here's what they're worried about. If Gideon doesn't go and capture those two Midianite kings, the Midianite kings will get their people, kind of build their army back up, and then punish all of the towns that helped out Gideon. And yet what happens? Gideon comes back and punishes them maybe in an even more severe way than the enemies would have done. And why does he do it? Not because they're upset. Or not because he's upset that they don't worship the same God or they're not saying God's with you. But because they're saying, we don't honor you, Gideon. We don't think you can do it. And so Gideon starts to make things all about himself. And then we have these two kings, Ziba and Zalmunna. And he's about to kill them and he's talking to them. And then they say this. And I think this is a really telling line. And this is kind of obscure, but it really stood out to me. They said, as is the man, so is his strength. That as is the man, so is his strength. And so Gideon agrees with their motto, not by saying you're right, but by taking his sword and killing them. And I think what the heart of what the author is trying to get at here is that Gideon has now decided that he's going to rely on his own strength instead of God's strength. And that's why we don't see God mentioned hardly at all in this passage. So Gideon could just kind of look back and see these amazing exploits that he did. But I think what he's forgetting is that God was the one who gave him strength. God was the one who gave him his strategy. And God is the one who gave him wisdom. And so Gideon becomes to make it I can do this. You don't respect me. I have the strength. And so many times in our life, that's what pride does to us. Right? Like things are going good in our life. We get a promotion or we've done something great or we've overcome some obstacle. And now in the future when we look, we're confident. Right? Because we say, listen, I was able to do this. So now I can do this and do this and do this. And what happens is become more reliant on us and less reliant on God. And when we become more reliant on ourselves, we don't need God anymore. Right? Because we're saying, God, you know what? I'm good. I got this on my own. And we don't know we're saying that. And that's why I say pride blinds us to seeing that we're actually relying on our own strength 
and not God's strength. See, here's what we all really need. You and I need a fresh filling from God, not once a week, but every day. Because he's the one who really gives us our strength and our energy. And here's the problem. Some of us treat God like he's the gas that's filling us up. And then we end up treating church like a gas station. So let me draw that out a little more. Basically, we can come to the point where we come to church once a week and we say, okay, God, you filled out my tank. Now I'm good for the rest of the week. Now I can go because you're with me. And maybe some of us were running on fumes by Saturday, but it's okay because we're going to come and get filled back up at church on Sunday. And see, that would be fine if all God was worried about was our religion, right? That we did certain things, but what he really wants is a relationship with us. And so that's why you and I all need a filling every single day that we get to get in the word of God and read it on our own. That we have to spend time praying and worshiping God and being with our families and praying before we go to bed and just acknowledging that God is there and that we need his spirit to fill us up. Because when you go for a long time on your own, just thinking, well, I'll get God here and there, what happens is that you begin to feel empty. And you begin to feel weak. So I, I love how God makes these things real to us. So if we go back beyond the book of Judges, back to the Israelites in the book of Exodus, they were slaves in Egypt, and then God did some amazing things, right, to bring them out of Egypt, and it was awesome. And then they got into the desert, and they started forgetting what God had done for them. And it seems like over and over again, no matter how amazing God did, they kind of forgot. And so I think he put a system in place to help them remember, so they're out in the middle of the desert. There's not much food out in the desert. And so here's what God says I'm going to do. I'm going to make this stuff rain down called manna. And you can make bread out of it and it'll feed you. But here's the thing. You can only collect enough for one day. Because after that one day, it's going to get moldy and have maggots in it. And so what do you know? People try to collect a lot of it after the, the first day. And the next day, the rest that they collected turns moldy and full of maggots, right? And, and this happens six days a week. And on the sixth day, the stuff that comes out, he said, collect enough for two days worth. So they collect enough for two days worth. And the next day, it's not moldy or maggoty, but then the day after it is. And so what was God doing? God was saying, you need to rely on me every single day to provide for you. And that's the same for us that we can't say we're our own source of strength. Each of us need God to provide for us every day. And that's why it's so important that we get a fresh feeling of God. D.L. Moody, he was a, a famous pastor in the 1800s. I love what he says. He said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. It's powerful. So pride blinds us from, from seeing our source of strength. And once we decide that our source of strength is in us, we begin to start to think that life is all about us. So pride not only blinds us to what gives us strength, but to who we are living for. So here's the second thing we learn in Gideon's story. That pride blinds us from seeing who we are serving. Verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request. 
that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jerubbabel, also that's Gideon, another name for Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own for whom he had many wives. His concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abazirites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. Now again in this passage we see him forgetting his source of strength, just like the last time, right? So the people said, rule over us because you've delivered us out of the hands of Midian. And what really happened? God delivered them out of the hands of Midian, but he doesn't say that. He just kind of lets it go. And you know what? He begins to do things that are a little, let's say, unorthodox for people who worship God. See, what he does is he, he takes a share of the plunder, takes all these earrings, and then he kind of makes it into this thing called an ephod. Now this is pretty similar to another story back when the Israelites were in the desert again, where Aaron the high priest made gold earrings into a golden calf. So Gideon should have known better, but he doesn't. And so he makes an ephod, and, and what an ephod is, is when the Israelites were in the desert, God said, I want you to kind of make this traveling temple or tabernacle. Right, kind of like a big rectangle. I want you to set it up and tear it down, kind of like we do every, every Sunday at Spring Valley, right? Get the poles, set them up, set up the curtains, kind of like the same thing we do. And, and part of that tabernacle was an ephod, which is kind of a, a breastplate that the high priest would wear, and it would have stones on the front of it. And then it would have this pocket in the front. And in this pocket were two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And so these are stones that people would use to see what God's will was. And they would, it's a little weird, they would kind of use them like a coin, like a coin toss. And when one came up, that meant God was for them or for their plan and against their plan. And that's kind of how it worked. But what happens here is that Gideon makes his own ephod. And then he may put it on some type of idol, we don't know. But what he does is he sticks it back in his hometown. Kind of in his backyard. And so he wants people to come through Gideon to actually hear from God. Right? So if you were around this area and you wanted to come to God, you had to go to Gideon's house or Gideon's place and get permission from Gideon to get to know what God wants you to do. See, the problem is that Gideon started to use God for his own purposes. And that's why I say pride blinds us from who we are serving because Gideon stopped serving God and started serving himself. So I made this little chart for us. If you could put that up, Paul. And, and uh, 
maybe it's not on there, but basically here's what it looks like. It looks like this. We're on the bottom, and there's an arrow pointing up to God. And that's the right way that it should be, that our lives are about God. They're about bringing God glory, but here's what normally happens when pride gets in the way. That God gets on the bottom, and there's an arrow pointing up to us. Because we start to actually think that God exists for us, for our good. And listen, I definitely get it. Okay, there's a song that we sing called, Good, Good Father. And I really believe that God is a good father. Right, he's, he's good. And any good dad wants his kids to have what is good and wants his kids to be taken care of. And so we take that and we say, okay, well, if God wants my best and he wants me to be comfortable and he wants me to be well taken care of and he wants my kids to go to a good school and he wants me to have a comfortable bank account and he wants me to have my best life now. And we could easily say, man, if God loves us, that's what he wants for us. But, but let me ask you a question. What if what we think is best isn't actually best? Like what if you think the good gifts that a father should give aren't actually the best gifts a father should give? Because here's what I think is actually our best. I think we're actually most fulfilled and most excited when we're worshiping God and bringing glory to his name. See, I really believe this. I really believe each one of us in this place was created for a mission. Okay, so, so maybe you've seen people like I've seen. I've seen people walking around with their phones, and they're looking down, and they're walking, and they're walking, and that's not abnormal, is it? But lately, you've probably seen more and more and more people walking around with their phones. I'm actually pretty worried that more injuries are going to come from looking down at your phone now. And it's all because of a game called Pokemon Go. Right, so maybe you've seen it on social media. Maybe you play it. I saw someone earlier today at church even playing it. Right, So Pokemon Go is basically an app on your phone that you have. And it uses your camera and your GPS. And you go around trying to capture these imaginary monsters that are kind of there in imagination. But you can see them through your camera. But it is a craze over the last, I don't know, 10 days that's kind of taken over the internet, it's taken over phones. I mean, listen, today you're probably going to see people playing Pokemon Go. And here's the reason I think people are so all about it. Because people were created for a mission. People were created to have a purpose. And so playing a game is one of the ways that they can feel like they're accomplishing something. Now, I'm not making any comments necessarily about the game but about us as people. That you and I were created for something bigger than what we have. We are created to do something bigger than make ourselves happy. And here's what it is. We were created to join God in his mission to help restore the world back to himself. Right, because knowing God isn't just about going to heaven and being with him one day. It's actually about participating in what he's doing in the world. And so that's what he's called us to do. Francis Chan, he's a, he's a pastor. He has this quote that, that I think is always really convicting to me. He said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding in things in life that don't really matter. Our greatest fear should not be a fear of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. 
Listen, one day, if pride stays in your life and you let it grow and grow and grow, I'm afraid that you're going to wake up and you're going to look back and you say, I wish I was here, but I'm all the way over here. They're going to look at people who finish well and say, I wish I was like that, but all the decisions I made in my life didn't lead me to that place. In our culture, there's, there's an acronym that they use for the millennial generation, and it's called FOMO. Right? And what that stands for is fear of missing out. Right? We're so worried about what we're missing out on that we don't want to commit to any one thing. Because if we commit, then we're going to miss out on this, or this experience, or that experience. I mean, what I think pride says is, you don't want to miss out on anything that's for you. But what God says is that I don't, want to miss, I don't want you to miss out on what I have for you. And so he calls us to be on mission for him, to bring him the glory, not to use him to somehow bring us glory. So now we know that it's clear that pride can blind us from seeing what's important, that our strength comes from God and our best life actually comes from serving him. The last thing that pride does is it blinds us from seeing ourselves rightly. Here's the third point. Pride blinds us from seeing our own hypocrisy. We'll go back to verse 22. We're just going to read two verses. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. This is great, right? Gideon gets something right for once in this chapter. He says, I'm not going to rule over you. The Lord will rule over you, which was God's plan all along for the people of Israel, that they wouldn't have a human king, that he would act like their king. But then here's the problem. In the very next sentence, Gideon starts to act like a king. Right? So he does something that all governments do. He asks to collect some taxes, right? He starts collecting the spoils of war. And then he kind of makes this monument, which is actually a monument to himself. And then he does what, what maybe even the Midianite kings that he caught and all the kings of that area did is that he starts to have a harem or many wives and even some concubines, which are women that he sleeps with but doesn't get married to. And then he has 70 or 71 kids and so listen, when you have 70 kids, that's a lot of mouths to feed. And that costs a lot of money. And then not only does he have 70 kids, which are a lot, he has somewhere, they think, between 13 and 14 wives. Now who knows that wives are expensive? Right? My wife is back in the toddler room, so I can say this. But my wife is expensive. She'll come home from shopping and she'll say, Andrew, look how much I saved you. Right? And I'll see it on the receipt. You know that trick? Say, look how much I saved you. And I'll say, you know what? That's awesome, but look how much you spent. So you know what the better thing is? Don't go shopping. That saves a lot more money. No, but in reality, all these wives and all these kids are expensive. So what does it take to support them? Well, probably the treasury of a king. And so if you weren't convinced quite yet that Gideon's acting like a king, you have to look at the name of his son that they mentioned specifically. 
His name's Abimelech. Now, there's a lot of Abimelechs in the Bible, and here's what the name Abimelech means. My father is the king. Okay, Gideon said, I'm not going to be the king, but he named his kid, my dad is the king. One of the easiest things to spot is hypocrisy, isn't it? For some reason, we're just really good at seeing when someone else is a hypocrite. I mean, Christians get called hypocrites all the time. We say we want to love people like Jesus, but then someone catches us slandering or talking bad about our neighbor or about our coworker. Or we say we're going to love people sacrificially like Jesus loved them, but we use our resources and our money the same way everyone else does, kind of for ourselves. Like we know deep inside that we're hypocrites. But we don't want to admit it. See, here's what pride does. It blinds us from seeing our own hypocrisy. Listen, some of you, not all of you, but some of you have some sins that you're keeping hidden. That you haven't told anyone else about. That if you told people there would be consequences, you don't tell them. And pride, pride tells us, you know what? You're not really hurting anyone, so it's okay. Or you know what? Your sin isn't quite as bad as this person, so it doesn't really matter. You're going to be fine. But here's what I know when you have sin hidden inside of you. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to Jesus and have the Holy Spirit working, the more conviction you feel. And guess what? It doesn't feel good to be convicted, so what do you do? You start to put God at arm's length and you say, God, you can have all of this except right here. And you grow a little bit distant from God because of that thing that's eating away. See, pride wants us to really believe that we're not that bad and it's okay. And as long as people see us as good, then we're good. Uh, Hans Christian Andersen, he was a... He wrote some fairy tales. He wrote, he wrote one called The Emperor's New Clothes. Maybe you've heard of it. There's been lots of cartoons and, and different adaptations of it. But in the story, two swindlers come into this kingdom, and the king in the kingdom loves clothes. That's his obsession and passion. He wants to have the newest and nicest and best-looking clothes. And so they play off of this king's weakness. And they come to the king and they said, we're going to need a lot of money, but I'm going to make you the nicest set of clothes you've ever had. And they're going to have magical powers. So here's what the magical power of your new clothes is going to be. No one who's unfit for their current job they have or who's really dumb will be able to see your clothes. Only the smart people and the people who are qualified for the job are going to be able to see your clothes. And so these swindlers started making it on these weaver's wheels. And the king would send his wise men and other people to go see the clothes. And when they went to the shop, they saw these people spinning, but they didn't see them spinning anything. And so in their minds, what they thought is, I must not be fit for my job, or I must be dumb, but I'm not going to tell anyone. So they go back to the king and they say, King, your clothes are so beautiful. They're amazing. They're the nicest things I've ever seen. And so it comes to the day when the king's going to show these clothes off. And he's going to be in this parade. 
And so he's parading through the streets with these invisible clothes on. And all of the townspeople are looking at each other and saying, wow, what wonderful clothes those are. Look at that long train that his servants are carrying. Because none of them wanted to believe, right, that they were unfit for their job or they weren't really smart. And what breaks everything down is a little child yells out that the king is naked. And all the townspeople start to realize that the king has been tricked. And it's not about them, it's actually about the king. You'd think at this point the king starts to hear the crowd talking and whispering and realizing that there's something wrong. And yet the king doesn't stop and hop in his carriage. Even though the people may see him naked, his pride just makes him keep on walking and walking and walking. See, that's what pride will do to us. It'll stop us from seeing our own hypocrisy. Even if we know other people see it, even if everyone else sees it, our pride tells us we're not that bad. Keep on going. And at the end, that king looked like a fool and he lost respect. And here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want our pride to stop us from finishing well because we are too blind to see that there are things in our lives that need to be healed and changed. So what's the antidote for pride? The antidote is humility. But here's the problem with humility. You don't just wake up one day and say, today I'm going to be humble and my pride's going to go away. You can't make yourself humble. See, humility only comes with being face to face with Jesus Christ who shows you who you really are. He shows you who you are. With all your brokenness and all the messed up parts of you. And then he does this. He says, I love you anyways. That's the good news of Jesus. That all the people who are unqualified, who didn't love God, God still loved them and cared for them so much that he sent Jesus. And we're so broken and so unqualified that Jesus had to come in and take our place because we deserve death and nothing else. And so when you come face to face with the reality that you're broken and yet you're loved, you begin to get humility. And that pride starts to wither away and you realize that you were never the source of your strength that God always was and it changes the way you live and you realize that life is empty if you live for yourself and you start living for God and you realize that there's hypocrisy in your life and people might point it out and you might say yeah I know but isn't it amazing the God that I serve I need him to heal me See, that's the antidote to our pride. And this morning, the way we're going to remember it together is through communion. So I love it our ushers could get ready to, to pass out communion this morning. 
See, what communion is coming to say is that we remember what Jesus did for us and it changes the way we see ourselves. So this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, we'd love to invite you to take communion with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we ask that you just refrain. This is something followers of Jesus do to celebrate all that God's done for you. But listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, let me just say you can be. I have a feeling, not just in this church, but in churches all over the world, there's people who come and they're sort of like, I'm here, and maybe they come with their spouse or their kids or someone dragged them. But maybe you're here and you realize that you're tired and weary because you haven't been leaning on God for his strength. Or you realize your life is empty because you've been living it just for yourself. And you say there's got to be something more than that. Today, Jesus says there is. And it's for you. And he invites you to come to himself. And all you need to do is ask him to come into your life to be the leader of your life. And you can do that. So I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward this morning. And we're going to pass out communion. And while they're passing out, I'd love for our action points to be up here for us to be thinking about this. Where are you getting your strength from today? What are you leaning on? Whose agenda are you serving? Is it yours or God's? And when will you admit your hypocrisy? As we receive the elements this morning, Jeff and the band are going to play a song. And I want us just to be in reflection in this moment about these things. And then take time to praise God. And then we'll receive communion together.